Hello and welcome back to the Pop Increase podcast. Um, it's been a while, uh, more than a week for now. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's not been much cricket happening. So we were also kind of uh, deliberating on what we can talk about. Uh, so yeah, before I get into what we are doing this week, I'm here with uh, our usual uh, host, Ani, and also a new guest this time. Uh, Anand, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Um, hi guys, I'm Anand, and I bribed my way to get into this podcast. <laughs> what do you mean you bribed your way to get into this podcast? <laughs> yeah, Alanka, it wasn't offering me a chance before. Uh, so I had to tell him that I'd give him a hundred bucks and he allowed me in. Yeah, fair play, fair play. <laughs> yeah, so now... Just a hundred bucks, that's all it takes? Yep. Yep. Alan's pretty cheap that way. Yeah, so you guys know how to get into this podcast next time you guys talk to Yeah, I mean, now we're a real podcast. We got our first guest, you know. Now we can, now yeah. we can actually say that we're a podcast. I'm going to definitely hear a lot of catchings in my bank account. Yeah, yeah. anyway, moving on. Um, so, yeah, like I mentioned, not much cricket happening. There's the, the Zimbabwe versus uh, Pakistan series which just ended the... Uh, county championships going pretty well. Uh, there's the Ireland uh, domestic one-day leagues, uh, but I'm not sure a lot of us are following all these. So, um, pretty difficult to come up with interesting content to maybe discuss on those lines. So, what we thought we could do is uh, maybe reminiscence on like some of the older day games that were like uh, pretty nostalgic for us and also left uh, a lasting effect on us. So uh, I'll give the mic away to Ani actually, because he'll take you through this new section that we have planned for you guys. Yeah, so this is Direct Hits, the first mini series in the Pop Increase canon. And uh, so the idea behind it was for, you know, all of us as cricket fans to sort of go back to old games that we might remember very fondly. And uh, I, with my hipster ass brain was looking for games that were maybe not so obvious. There's obviously like iconic games like the the World Cup Finals in 2011 or even the most recent World Cup Finals. Uh, and uh, I decided to pick uh, for this first episode the India-Pakistan game in the World T20, the very first World T20 in 2007, which is not the finals actually, which is also an iconic game, but I picked the group stage game for a variety of reasons, but this was the very first India-Pakistan match that I had watched. And uh, also the very first T T20 game that I watched. I hadn't watched any of the previous games in this tournament. And so this was probably like a really formative game for me in the game of cricket. So um, yeah, so what do, you, what do you guys think of the World T20? Because you guys started watching cricket a little before this T20 boom happened. So what did you think of this tournament and T20's inception? Uh, in general? Um, so for me, it was uh, something new. Like, of course, we'd heard about the concept of T20s and uh, it it was all very exciting back in the day because uh, T20, it was, it was shorter than the one-day game. And the one-day game was pretty exciting to follow back then. But when you're going to get something even shorter than a one-day game and it was made out to be like this huge carnival of cricket where you'd, you'd only get high scoring games, batsmen would have their way and um, there's more, there's, there were more gimmicks involved like the power play and all that. And it all seemed like there was going to be a lot of runs being scored and 
um, it was that way too because when you think about it in a one day game well, at least back in 2004-2005 when T20 as a concept started foraying 20 overs scoring 160-170 unthinkable how many one day games have we seen that happen even now it's it's not like every one day game in 20 overs you're, the batting teams at 160 people still score around 120, 130, 140 maybe in a one day game in 20 overs but in a T20 match you get teams scoring 160, 180, even 200s. And that was uh, something that was very exciting as a prospect because all of us love seeing big high scoring games. And uh, the way the World Cup also kicked off, Chris Gale with that huge 100 uh, against South Africa, that it really set the tone for this World Cup. So it was a very exciting time. And we were definitely looking forward. India-Pakistan is anyway a huge thing. We were definitely looking forward to a World T20 India-Pakistan affair. Yeah, I mean, I think E20 was going on in both England and Australia. I think there was the County Blast and the Big Bash before international T20 became a phenomenon. And there were some odd matches here and there where uh, there were Australia, England as usual, and many T20 uh, small matches, which didn't seem of much consequence until the World Cup came. So when the World Cup came, I actually started taking T20 as more seriously as a format. But... What I, but contrary to Alan, I, I didn't think 200 or 180 would be a, a gettable score. For me, it was impossible to think of any score beyond 160 because at that time, uh, 300s were becoming a little more common and a score of 300 in one day international. So I thought that at best teams would get around 160, maybe 170, but 180, going to 180 and 200 was open entire new vista. So cricket for me. So, it was very different to pass as compared to uh, a 4G because I was a kind of a purist back then. I did think of T20 purely in terms of one day international and, and a lot of commentators also did. So, it was a very exciting format because um, the World Cup showcased a lot of things and moving on and if you consider the squads as well it, needed, it gave the expectation of something entirely different. Yeah, uh, I mean, at the time in ODIs, I think like 280 was a good score. So like even getting six runs and over was like a big deal, right? And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny, like looking back, I, I'm watching, I'm looking at this final score of 141 tied. And it's like, oh, that there must have been a bit of a an ODI hangover type situation where, you know, people are still not going full throttle. But I would... I mean, in 2007, I guess going at seven and over, scoring 140 itself would have been kind of a, a big deal, like playing that fast itself compared to what was in ODI cricket. Like that was not, you know, the most uh, common common thing I have to imagine. Um, but that's when like big big players come into the come into the play, like big T20 players that we know now come into the play. When if you take the example of like a guy like Chris Gayle or like uh, Herschel Gibbs. To them, scoring at above seven runs and over eight runs and over was—it's almost like bread and butter. They they love playing that way. And T20 is a format made for such players. They they thrive under these situations. And I I was genuinely excited to see how these players would actually come to play in that first World Cup because um, I was a bowler and I love seeing bowlers getting the better of the batsmen. But when the format came out for the first time. I was just genuinely excited to see batsmen go at it 
and yeah like 141 coming to a tie that that scenario was also pretty exciting cuz it was a good even contest between bat and ball there were phases when the bat was winning there were phases when the ball was winning but um overall in the tournament if you ask me i was very excited to see big t20 players with potential at least back in 2007 you know these players would be hitting every or try to at least hit every ball out of the park these players i was genuinely excited to see them especially hershel gibbs i was super excited for him because it was not even less than 6 or 7 months before he had hit six sixes in an over so all those events were still pretty fresh back then so i was very excited to see south africa actually light up the tournament it didn't happen but yeah i was very excited to see them light up that tournament yeah i mean hershel hershel gibbs chris gill they would have been born at the exact right time you know this format becomes big right as they are entering their prime and uh, you know they really get to uh, show their full potential in 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 this era of cricket but moving on to the game itself this is the india pakistan group stage game they were in uh, group d this was the 10th game and uh, you know i'm looking at these uh, squads in these starting 11s and this seems kind of uh, cliche uh, generally india with the explosive batting and somewhat sus bowling at least looking in hindsight and uh, pakistan with the always very solid bowling attack and uh, somewhat you know okay decentish batting lineup so what did you guys think of these squads uh, yeah now we have the benefit of hindsight so i can say that india was very forward looking but at that time i mean i was infuriated not to see someone like tendulkar because again my basis of t20 was all on odi so tendulkar was the best odi player and in my opinion probably the best odi player to ever play the game and to see him not be a part of the squad made me very irritated i mean i didn't want to support india that world cup because my favorite tendulkar dravid ganguly none of them were there i didn't like the bowling attack but at and for pakistan there were also a very good bowling attack and i thought pakistan would win this match because i i don't even know much about uh, all of these youngish indian squad uh, uttappa was just coming into being and karthik uh, i didn't like at that time but now looking back at it i think it's remarkable foresight from dhoni because to understand how the t20 format is different from one days because i think a lot of the other teams uh, developed their squads based on one day internationals and you could see uh, pakistan had yunus khan at number 4 a very dangerous position to bat and i would not put yunus khan there right now but yeah. they did not have that hindsight uh, but dhoni did and dhoni showed great uh, captaincy in by backing his squad because i have to say even though the bowling attack wasn't great and i still argue it isn't great he picked a, a squad for the future a squad based on how t20 should be played not on the basis of one day internationals and i think um, that's what made india win the world cup but yeah moving on I mean I yeah. think it's interesting you bring up Tendulkar because the next 3 or 4 years in the IPL showed that Tendulkar was actually a viable 2020 opening batsman he won the orange cap man of the tournament so you know maybe even with hindsight maybe Tendulkar could have been at this thing but this was a part of the Dhoni purge right like when he came into this thing Dravid was removed from the uh, ODI squad so was Ganguly so uh, I mean this was just an extension of that uh, yeah Alan, go ahead 
Yeah, no, I was also going to say that the squad was sort of the brainchild of uh, Chris Srikanth, right? Like he used, he was the the guy who put together this 15 or 16 member squad that went to the World Cup. And uh, I think India did a remarkable job to put someone like him as the chief selector for that team. Because uh, the way Srikanth plays, he, he was always meant to be a great T20 player. I still believe that if he was in this era, he would be one of the best T20 openers there would be. So having him and also Dhoni's foresight, I think both of them combined really well to put this team together. So uh, things like how uh, Anand mentioned, like uh, Yunus Khan at four, I don't think anybody in that Indian squad was as bad as Yunus Khan at four. Anybody in that 11, now that we can see how they have developed into a T20 team, anybody in that place could have been a better number four than Yunus Khan at number four in the T20 game. Yeah, I mean, the Yunus Khan at four really shocks me. I mean, this, I mean, I, I kind of expected certain things like this from every single team that uh, that they would have one of those relics of the past being there. I mean, I think the entirety, because even, you know, Shoaib Malik, uh, looking back, I don't really see him as like a 2020 guy, at least at number five, I don't see him at, at, as that kind of a guy. And uh, uh, it's interesting, you know, that, uh, you, you know, the two top scorers. Uh, Mizbah obviously had a very good game. He finished with a strike rate of 151, which is pretty great. But Raghun Atapa, who had a great game, this was like probably his breakout performance, uh, only 128 strike rate. So, you know, this is the, uh, it's still kind of interesting, you know, this, this, uh, it was not, this team was not going, you know, uh, like full guns blazing at the time, but you know, the potential was definitely there. Interesting uh, things about the squad. Final zero, Joginder Sharma was not initially picked for, uh, at the beginning. I remember Rohit Sharma had a few games down the line in this tournament and Dinesh Karthik was dropped a, a couple of times. But yeah, those were the uh, couple of small observations that I made that uh, MS Dhoni probably saving the secret weapon, Joginder Sharma, for the, for the big games. You know? even, even Yusuf Patan, he, he debuted in the last match. And uh, I think that was a bit of a mind game because Dhoni used to come and say how uh, Sehwag was going to be fit and he's going to just have a late fitness test and he's going to play the finals and everything. And at the toss, he comes out and says, oh, Yusuf Patan's debuting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's a kind of interesting rotation of the squad. Uh, uh, so, you know, moving on, to this thing, there's obviously a lot of narratives coming in the when it comes to an India-Pakistan uh, game. The one that stuck out to me a lot at that time because I I didn't really fully have the context of India versus Pakistan then. But both India and Pakistan had a disastrous one-day World Cup. They both got knocked out in the group stage, and uh, so you know this was potentially a chance for redemption. They're both playing against each other. And, uh, you know, obviously this goes on to become a finals preview. So, uh, do you think there are any, any aspects of this game that, you know, came back to show, showcase anything in the finals? Or, uh, did, you, uh, did you think about what happened in the World Cup as a, as a precursor? Like, what did, what did you guys think, narrative-wise, coming into this game? I mean, again, in terms of hindsight, I think 2010 was the last bilateral series between India and Pakistan. So everything coincided there. So that's why this game is actually even more special because one thing, as you rightly said, there's no joke in the Sharma. And you would clearly see that Agarkar was not a T20 bowler by any means. I mean, he was 
boring in the slot most of the time. And if he was, if he had any use, it was mostly because of his batting. So one reason why this was such an interesting game was because there was a squad revamp even for Pakistan actually because um, Malik was captain. Um, it was no longer. Uh, I think it was Mohammad Yusuf then for the World Cup. He wasn't there in the squad. And uh, Malik was captain. And Malik did go on to establish himself as a proper T20 legend. But uh, uh, even in this case, it was an entire new squad. We thought, okay, maybe we could pin our hopes on this Indian side. Even though it took away our best players. I mean, I was certainly, I certainly didn't give India a chance. But a lot of people around me did. But the squad revamping was one of the big reasons to look forward to this T20 World Cup. Coupled with the fact that both teams had a bad World Cup and add, added to this, there was this huge rivalry hovering over them. So, I think that all added to this um, spiciness of the game and made it interesting even before the ball began. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's you said you know this was the last real bilateral series. There was one like mini ODI series that that I remember is Bhuvneshwar Kumar's breakout. There was like a three yeah, game I think ODI that series. that was 2010-11 or something. So I think it was a good four-year gap between the last one and that one. Yeah. So the uh, so there was one, but like my generation or like my age, dudes, I have never seen a proper India. Pakistan bilateral series. I've never seen an India-Pakistan test match. So, you know, it's something that I feel I've been robbed of. I've only seen them in these big tournaments. So, I, I relish an India-Pakistan game in one of these big tournaments, like, all the time. And, uh, yeah, go ahead. To me, to me, like, I think after the Cricket World Cup in 2003, that's when I really became addicted to cricket. And I was really lucky because between 2003 and 2007, I think India-Pakistan played each other very often. Like, there were so many games happening. Almost every six or seven months, we would see an India-Pakistan match on TV. And there were also all these benefit uh, games that were played. Like, I think we played a series with Pakistan in the UAE just to launch their new stadium. There were insane things like this happening between India and Pakistan. So from there, uh, that was like the build-up to the 2007 World Cup. And then the World Cup was a disaster for both teams. There was actually, uh, it was the Super 8 formats back then. And... Um, there was this one game which was slated to be an India-Pakistan game in the Super 8. So people were so confident that they were going to uh, definitely witness India and Pakistan playing in the Super 8 in that 2007 World Cup uh, in West Indies. But it turned out to be Bangladesh versus Ireland. So the comical part of that game was you could see everybody in the stadium dressed in India and Pakistan kids watching Bangladesh play Ireland. So it was very ironical. So like Anand said, coming from that point to this World Cup, uh, too many narratives had been built on. And the vibe of an India-Pakistan game has been like, you know, ingrained in my DNA now because of the way I've seen those small bilateral series that happened between 2003 and 2007. And an India-Pakistan game is always an India-Pakistan game. There's nothing bigger than that rivalry for me in like limited overs cricket at least. So an underrated narrative going into this game uh, I don't know if you guys caught, caught this, but basically the previous game, so Scotland was the third team in this, uh, in this group. And uh, Pakistan obviously beat Scotland, but India's match with Scotland was rained out. Uh, so when India made 141 in their 20 overs, if Pakistan was going at a run rate of 9, if they chased this down at a run rate of 9 per over, India would have been knocked out on net run rate. 
which was kind of an interesting thing that that could have happened where india two big tournaments in a row they get knocked out this time it would have been a little more uh, i guess it, it would have been a little more of a robbery <laughs> to remove india but like that would have been that would have been a pretty insane uh, turn of events if pakistan just blew india out and then like remove india but the thing about putting india and pakistan in the same group stage is that then we wouldn't be in the super eight together and we might only see each other once again in the finals if we got there so uh, it was it was a pretty pretty special to put put these two teams in the same group uh, this way um i guess moving on to uh, the game itself india goes to bat first and one of my favorite bowlers mohammad asif just rips through the top order and i i mean this dude could have been like one of the greatest bowlers in pakistan history like this guy was awesome and it sucks that you know the 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 whole match fixing thing happened but rewatching mohammad asif what did you guys think of him and uh, you know how his performance overall every time i watch mohammad asif i always think of the career that could have been i mean he had only 24 test matches and was enough to make such a huge impact that peterson called him the toughest bowler he had ever faced and in this t20 world cup more than looking at asif's bowling i think it was one of the best spells in the tournament and it's very underrated especially because the finals uh, received a lot more um, influence and praise but uh, this game this spell especially was exceptional because he swung the ball both ways as usual and um, what it actually predated was the arrival of this sole new ball bowlers in t20 like now when you think of chahar or when you think of someone even like bolt for that matter this asif spell just predated all of them because he could bowl he would get good swing in the first um, six or seven overs and then finish his spells and you don't need to look elsewhere for you can look elsewhere for the depth and i think that's what made this um, spell all the more special because now in hindsight you can now draw comparisons to other new ball bowlers and asif just set the tone for all of them yeah i actually think that this asif spell is the best spell i've seen in t20 power play cricket ever like that power play spell was insane the wickets that he's taken he's taken the wicket of gambhir sehwag and yuvraj within the power play that's three big fishes in the indian batting lineup especially sehwag and yuvraj like sehwag he he plays only one way he's he's again one of those players who's born to play t20s yuvraj singh was one of the most experienced players in that 11 and gambhir was also a pretty attacking batsman he was going he 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 had like a lot of good innings in that world cup and he he's been in good form even leading up to that world cup so he was one of those big fishes that asif really could have uh on, like only asif could have taken the wicket in that in that world cup in that first over because uh he was the kind of bowler who gambhir would get out to so the ball was moving and then the shot that gambhir played was out of frustration i don't think that gambhir really wanted to play that shot either so uh there were a lot of good uh the ball was moving a lot in that spell and i think that was one of the best power play spells i've seen and like anand said uh bowlers like asif really did set the benchmark for bowlers like deepak chahar and trent bowl that we see now i i was actually thinking of how chennai would use uh, ben hilfenhaus when he was playing for uh, csk when uh, i saw mohammad asif just swing the ball both ways and just completely like 
you know, both three overs in the power play, get the new ball. It was awesome to see. And this was like single new ball as well. You know, the, the, the this was when the white ball still swung a bit and it, it was pretty great to, to watch. He got the man of the match for this bowling performance, which, you know, I think it's, I would say it's a pretty great, like it's a man of the match worthy performance. And uh, it's just emblematic of just how good this Pakistan bowling order was because Umar Gul, he didn't have a great game, but he was a pretty solid uh, pace bowler. Sohel Tanvir, uh, also in, in this, he had figures of four overs, one for 18, which is also pretty excellent. 11 dot balls, Asif with 17 dot balls, Umar Gul with 12. That's like just just an amazing Pakistan. This was when they still had some stability with their bowling products where like bowlers would, you know, still uh, ha- have like a few, like seven to eight years uh, of a career and they would actually stay for an extended period of time and not be like one and done type fast bowlers like what they're producing right now. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just really, I was just really impressed with this Pakistan uh, bowling lineup overall, actually. Yeah, I mean, if you just think about it, like if Indian, if the Indian batting order set the tone for T20s to come, I think the Pakistan bowling attack also played an equally important role in defining how T20s are going to be because you had a solid new ball bowler in Asif, Gul and Tanvir were great finishers. Afridi as the pinch hitting all-rounder. And you also had Yazir Arafat, who wasn't great, but he was selected solely for ODIs and T20. So they, so the Pakistan bowling attack was also uh, kind of forward-looking. It's just that their batting order was uh, all over the place. Speaking of Yasir Arafat, like I was actually kind of uh, surprised when I went back to this not to see Abdul Razak because to me he feel he felt like really like the proper the guy that was meant for T20s. He had a good record against India as well, so like it's it's interesting like to imagine if uh, Abdul Razak was a part of the squad, uh, if if things might have turned differently. Um, Alan, do you have any thoughts on the Pakistan uh, bowling attack? To me, I think that Arafat was the weak link in this bowling attack, actually. Because um, even even in that game, the bowler who got tonked the most was Arafat. And uh, I think the Indian batsmen knew that he was a weak link. They they definitely targeted him. And especially Uttappa, he gave him a good hiding in all the overs that he faced him. I think even Agarkar gave Arafat a good hiding. Or was that Gul? I'm not sure. But one of the two, Agarkar played a very good knock towards the end. I think it was either Arafat or Gul who got a good hiding from him. So, yeah. Uh, I think Arafat was definitely the weak link in this attack. But um, if we have to compare him and Razak, I I think there's two things that uh, Pakistan looked at. One was uh, the the bounce and the pace that you can generate of that Durban wicket. And uh, I think that's what gave Arafat the edge. Because they already have a very deep batting lineup. If you see, they bat till Afridi, Afridi and Mizbahulak, both of them bat pretty well. And Umar Gul is a handy bat too. So I don't see why they wanted they would have wanted to play two pinch hitting all rounders in Afridi and Razak. And that's probably why they went ahead with a specialist fast bowler in Arafat. But uh, I think in hindsight we can say that he was probably definitely the weak link in that bowling attack. Yeah, I mean just Historically also, right? Because, you know, we still remember Sohil Tanvir, Mohamed Asif, Umar Gul as pretty mm-hmm. solid bowlers throughout their career. We don't really talk about Yasser Arafat <laughs> too much. Uh, I mean, in modern day cricket, you know, maybe Yunus Khan wouldn't have got the nod. Everyone moves up and then uh, uh, Abdul Razak comes in at number seven uh, instead. And and so that would have been more of a T20 type, uh, type lineup. Uh, 
but uh, speaking of guys that did well against this pakistan bowling attack robin utappa breakout game this was a pretty good tournament overall for him but uh, robin utappa really setting the tone in the group stage uh, in india's first game like really uh, you know he he would go on to win uh, an orange cap uh in the IPL be a very consistent top order batsman in 2020 cricket for a long time to come um in the absence of guys like rohit sharma and suresh raina and virat kohli who who would come later on and probably replace him in the international setup i think robin utappa had a really good like anchor anchoring role game uh, in this uh, in this match yeah i mean as you rightly point out robin utappa did function like a bridge uh between the kohli generation and the older generation i think he was quite good in odis even before then i mean he was a number 6 batsman and he functioned as a finisher but the decision to promote him to number 3 in t20s was a brilliant decision i think because robin utappa can also play the anchoring game while he can also finish games off for you so he's capable of performing both roles and number 3 was the ideal spot for him and he just showed how well he is able to hold off against bowlers like asif and tanvir and take on arafat who as alan rightly pointed out was the weakest link in the side so he had the game and he also had the cleverness to adapt according to the situations and this not just showed uh, all his potential and uh, established him as a solid t20 batsman to come Yeah, I feel like uh, Robin Utappa had a very good partnership with Dhoni too, because um, Utappa was being very counter-attacking. He took on Arafat, like I mentioned before, and uh, Dhoni, when he was on strike, he didn't try to hit every ball to the boundary or anything. Dhoni was very smart. He played quick twos, or he just gave the strike back to Utappa when he could. So I think in that partnership that they had, they brought the stability back, and Utappa, who was in good flow. he kept going ahead with it and uh, i think the only reason why we saw a, a lot less of utappa was because rohit sharma was back heavily the only guy who's effect been affected so much by uh, rohit sharma's innumerable backings that he's received he's also proven to uh, make use of those backings now but i i feel like we would have seen a lot more of utappa in both odis and t20s if uh, the indian selection panel had not persisted so much with someone like rohit sharma yeah uh, you talk about his partnership with dhoni this was like a a vintage dhoni innings right like this is like peak dhoni just builds he, he's rebuilding the innings basically uh, basically on a ball uh, once utappa got out he started hitting his boundaries uh, it was pretty it was pretty awesome uh, <laughs> seeing like a, a prototype version of what dhoni would become for india and csk exactly uh, later done cuz back in the day the the version of dhoni we all knew was the brute force dhoni the dhoni who would would hit every other ball to a four or a six and just seeing dhoni do uh, that like you know the great running between the wickets and the smart singles and the twos here and there yeah it was a i guess it was always there in him and we just didn't notice it cuz the other the brute force innings were uh, you know more easy on the eye to look at Yeah, um, especially because um, Dhoni was uh, compared with Michael Bevan, another top finisher. And at that time, I didn't think Dhoni would be as 
composed as Michael Bennett because Dhoni used to go all bang bang. But this T20 innings just showed how he is able to play a very measured innings like way Bevan can, and he proved to be a proper successor to Bevan's legacy, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean he's Bevan with a six, basically. Right? He's Bevan with the ability to hit a six whenever he can. So yeah, I, I mean I've heard like stories about Michael Bevan as like a great finisher, and I never really got to see him too much. But uh, I think you know we I got the T20 era version of Michael Bevan in in this in the teams that I supported it was pretty great. Uh, but interestingly, you know we we ragged on the Indian bowling attack a little bit, um, but the the sort of hidden benefit to this Indian bowling attack was that they actually uh, were pretty good lower middle order. Uh, Irfan Pathan comes in, hits two sixes to get us to 100, makes 20 of 15, and later Ajita Garkar hits two fours, 14 of 19. Harbhajan Singh obviously didn't have a good game, but Irfan Pathan, Harbhajan Singh, Ajita Garkar, and then later even Srisant with what he know he can potentially do. A uh, pretty solid uh, tail end, uh, actually, right? You know, it's... Uh, it's not it was something that India has been known for historically. Yeah, because um, if you if you look at the point when Irfan Patan came into bat, um, Afridi, uh, I mean not Afridi, sorry, uh, Robin Uttapa when he got out, he got out when uh, the score was around 82, and it was like 12 overs gone, and um, the next three overs, India just added 17 runs. It, they had lost all momentum, and Pakistan were like definitely putting on the brakes. So. Uh, Afridi's over that uh, Irfan Patan faced and he scored those two huge sixes and the way he got out he was still trying to go for a third one so yeah like I think Patan's innings in the, with the bat definitely shifted the momentum towards uh, India's way because uh, India lost it after uh, Uttapa's wicket and uh, Patan and Dhoni were easily the last recognized batting pair you could say that because um, Irfan Patan was more than a handy bat he was not a bowler who could bat he was actually almost a genuine all-rounder. He could, and I'm I'm probably saying this with a good amount of bias because Irfan Patan was one of my favorite Indian cricketers. But yeah, I definitely felt like Irfan Patan had the potential to bat really well. He's even opened for India and ODIs. Hasn't gone really well for him, but he's he's done that before. So uh, yeah, like he was one of him. Him and Dhoni were the last batting pair, and uh, just seeing how Patan had the. Uh, free hand to still start striking the ball even after getting two sixes in an over uh, definitely showed the metal that we had with the lower batting order and uh, yeah so like you said Harbhajan didn't have a good game but Agarkar did well too with uh, I think he played like a proper finisher role in the last two overs which is very weird for me to say yeah, yeah I mean and with Patan I think Patan came at number three in ODIs but um, the thing is, he'd be he'd be a perfect number seven in T20s because he can not just because of bowling, but he's a proper all-rounder in T20s because he can he's capable of clearing the boundary as well. So, I mean, again, this is great foresight from Dhoni. I mean, everything seems so awe-inspiring now. And at that time, it wasn't. I can assure you, but uh, that's how deep this Indian batting line was. And I think Agarkar was solely picked for that reason because he really doesn't seem like a proper T20 bowler for me. Yeah. So, thanks to how this. Weird, how weird is it to realize that Ajit Agarkar was picked in the Indian side to be a finisher? 
Yeah, I mean, I can't stop laughing the, about the, it. But yeah. The Shardul Thakur of his time. Oh, God. <laughs> that comparison. I mean, at least Thakur did well in dead bowling for India. I mean, Agarkar, I don't know. He was, I mean, right now, if you look at it, he was essentially bowling all slot balls. But, you know, if you look at the commentary at that time, everyone was emphasizing on Yorkers. Yorkers were the new phenomenon then. So, they didn't uh, chastise Ajit Agarkar so much because... Uh, the slot was essentially his attempt at getting a Yorker. But now when we look at all the T20s, you can see how what a terrible T20 bowler he was. I mean, I think there's a version of Agarkar that could have been a decent T20 bowler where he's like a Bravo type. He's, you know, not using his pace and just changing. He's going full variations. But obviously, that was not really a thing <laughs> back then. But thanks to this lower order surge from Irfan Pathan and Ajit Agarkar, uh, India makes a score of 141. And uh, like, like I mentioned earlier, Pakistan, if they chase this down uh, with, with a run rate of nine, uh, they, go, uh, they knock India out on net run rate. Um, and Scotland gets to go to the Super 8 of the first T20 <laughs> uh, tournament. And so, uh, so India has a job on their hands. And uh, they do a pretty good job. RP Singh starts pretty well. Ifan Patan starts pretty well. Uh, and uh, they do the standard thing of, you know, increasing the net, uh, increasing the run rate required. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty good uh, bowling performance until uh, really Mishbaulak comes on, on the stage. And this is really the real finals preview because Mishbaulak was a near hero in the finals for Pakistan and he was a near hero here as well. So, uh, what do you guys think of Mishbaalik's overall innings in this game? This, this was really the most entertaining innings of the, of the game. I mean, it epitomizes Pakistan cricket in a nutshell. Because clearly, Mishbaal should have won that game. It was an outstanding innings. It was entertaining. It was box office. And then one from two balls, he didn't know what to do. He didn't know whether he needed to knock it for a single or hit it for a boundary. And in the end, he failed at both. So that is just classic Pakistan. I mean, it's it's not something which had been happening since 2005. It's been happening for since 90s. So, and the Mizbalak just encapsulates Pakistan cricket in a nutshell. But that was an outstanding T20 innings because he was very innovative. He did a lot of paddle sweeps, which again was extremely new for me because seeing that in T20 and how useful it could be, and that ultimately proved to be his downfall. But Mizbalak really set a tone for a great T20 innings. And even though I, I think number five might be a little too low a position for him to bat, I think he could make a solid number four with Malik at number three. But um, he really showed that he could adapt to whatever position he's given. And he really he should have led Pakistan to the victory. He came at number six, not even number five. He came at number six. That's yeah, insane. That's, that's the big conundrum in that batting order if you see in Pakistan's uh, 11 that day. Because we see they had Kamran Akmal, who's such a good attacking batsman. He came one down. He could have easily opened with Imran, but I don't know why they played Imran Nazir. Nazir was struggling the whole game. Uh, at least, but had some sort of flow. And Akmal was also, if you had seen the way uh, Pakistan were batting, uh, Akmal was the one who was actually giving them all the momentum in the starting stages of the innings. So I felt like Akmal should have opened, like Malik should have been one down, and two down could have been a freedy, and three or two down could have been Misbah, and three down could have been a freedy. So that would have been like a better batting T20 batting order than what Pakistan put out actually. 
Yeah, I mean, one hundred percent. I mean, it's it's it was it's actually borderline criminal that Mustafa came that late. But the interesting thing is that uh, once uh, Shoaib Malik and Shahid Afridi got out, India basically had this game on wrap, and uh, they needed at one point thirty nine of fourteen deliveries. Harbhajan Singh had two overs left. Mustafa hits a six and a four, and then him and Yasir Arafat take out seventeen runs of the the next over by Ajit Agarkar. They, they got they got destroyed. And then finally, 12 runs required of the Shri Santh over. And then, you know, he obviously gets to one run required of two balls. And Shri Santh coming up with the with the clutch, uh, you know, 140k per hour dot ball. And then uh, and then the run out by, uh, by Agarkar and Shri Santh together. So um, another finals preview, if, 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 if you will, because Shri Santh was obviously the, the guy who took the catch at the end. Um, yeah, but that, that, I mean, that was like a proper T20 like uh, finishing innings because 39 from uh, 14 required. That's something that is pretty challenging even now. It's not like uh, this would be easily chased by anybody. Like if, if Andre Russell did something like this, we'd consider it pretty impressive, right? So uh, yeah, I mean, what Mishbalak did was, was pretty fantastic. Uh, I, I want to ask you guys, like, did you find any particular moment in the main game before the bowl out? Uh, that was particularly memorable now that you might have forgotten that, uh, you know, that you really, that you might take away from the game having rewatched it. Um, so I had one memory which came back to me when I was watching Mizbah Ulak bat. And uh, that was also one thing that Anand mentioned. It was uh, Mizbah's innovative paddle sweeps. I remember going the day after this to the, to, to like, to, to coaching and uh, I could see my cricket coach lamenting away the way Ms. Bapulak was batting because those shots were so unorthodox and back in the day, nobody appreciated these unorthodox shots. So they were all so against the way Ms. Bapulak was batting. And it was just uh, like uh, realizing it now 10 years later, it just feels like how much the game has grown because now coaches are encouraging players to play these unorthodox shots and finding creative outlets to scoring runs. We they, people worship players like uh, ABD Villiers because he's he's a 360 degree player and setting fields to players like that is impossible. And uh, I'm just seeing the way the audience and even the coaching has grown in the last 12, 13 years. Looking at how such a shot was uh, being looked down upon to how it can be a big weapon. And like that actually just brought on a big smile to my face. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Mizbah Alak sweep was one thing. I mean, as Alan said, it was not looked uh, very well upon by coaches, and even I didn't like it actually. I mean, I just thought, oh, okay, this T20 spoiling Test cricket or something. I had very puritanical views about T20 um, back then, and I and I actually wasn't even that keen on Dhoni because Dhoni used to play a lot of these are not to the shots, but they had so much merit in the T20 game and. Especially when you think about how much swing there was in this wicket, which is not something which you're going to see. But one thing which I really take from this game, especially because it's an anachronism, was the absurdity of the ball out. Especially because it seems like a very silly way of deciding. And Pakistan still managed to miss all three deliveries. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to the ball out in detail in a, in a second. 
But uh, interesting thing about the battle sweep, Alan, I think your coach would have been vindicated uh, in the finals when Misbah played that scoop shot yeah. and got yeah. caught. And, and, and he would have been really happy about that. I think it was really when Dilshan started his Dil scoop, like mm-hmm. maybe a year later or something. Like, uh, I think that's when people just started to accept it, or at least they accepted that certain people can do it. And I think A.B. De Villiers probably made it like mainstream, uh, you know. Uh, so yeah, Misbah looked really ahead of his time. For me, the memorable moments of the match were uh, the two sixes that Irfan Patan hit of Shahid Afridi, and then the over that I thought should have basically put India in control, where uh, Yuvraj gets uh, Kamran Akmal run out, and uh, Irfan Patan then goes like three dot balls, and he then gets Yunus Khan out, and then uh, as after Misbah and Shoaib try to build a partnership he gets uh, Shoaib Malik out. So I thought Irfan Patan was like, really had like a super memorable match for me. It's like one of those games that I really like where players just kind of do everything. It's what I like about Jareja nowadays. I, I love these like all-round innings where they, they just kind of are all over the place in the, in the, on the score sheet. So I, I really like that. And I think that uh, for me, Irfan Patan was actually the man of the match for this. Like I, I know they gave it to us if it was a great performance. But yeah, if, if you're asking me who had the most impact on winning this game, it was it was Irfan Patan. That was really what I take away. And my estimation of him has really went up after actually watching this game. No, I uh, think uh, Irfan Patan has, uh, has brought us a lot of great memories. I mean, especially for Alan and I, I think since we started watching cricket from 2003, I think um, I think Alan would agree that the hat trick was unforgettable. Yep. And even more unforgettable is how he managed to lose from that position to Kamran Akman of all people. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Irfan had so much of this potential and he could swing the ball both ways and he was also good at reverse swing. And I, I really feel sad whenever I realize that his career went down the line as the years progressed because he could have emerged as a proper swing bowler for India and also set the tone for other swing bowlers like, I mean, yeah, he did in a way set it on like for people like Praveen Kumar and Boneshwar Kumar, but I think he was better than Praveen Kumar by a great distance and he should have had a much better career. Yeah, I, I was actually very disappointed with uh, the way Irfan Patan's bag end of his career like uh, came down to it. He was marred with a lot of injuries and he could never uh, recover from it. Uh, just seeing the way Ashish Nehra played for India in T20s, I definitely thought that um, if Irfan Patan found a way to fight back past his injuries, he had a place in India's T20 team, at least till 2016's types. But yeah, um, Irfan Patan had a wonderful game. And yeah, it was a, he was the guy who actually shifted the momentum both with the bat and with the ball when the momentum was going back to Pakistan. So uh, that, that was the sort of impact he had. And yeah, I definitely agree with you that... Uh, uh, Asif had a great, great spell, set the tone and everything for Pakistan. But ultimately, uh, the game was tied and India won on a bowl out. And that's probably what resulted in the award going to Asif. I think if India had won the game more comfortably or even without the need for a bowl out, I think the man of the match would have gone to Irfan Pathan. Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely need, probably need to one one of these days look back at the hat-trick game as well. because. I haven't seen the full game. I've only seen the hat trick. So I, I, I would love to like do a recap of that that game, especially if you guys had watched it back then. That would have been awesome to talk about. That's but fun. yeah. So um, 
so now that brings us to the bowl outs now for me the interesting so i guess prior to this whenever a match was drawn it was drawn it was tied whatever and uh, i i don't know what the rule was prior to this whether this was like a new thing but so they they do a bowl out which i guess is the cricket equivalent to a football penalty situation and uh, it, it's it's about it's 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 10 times more comical uh, that this happened but uh, the in, the most interesting thing about the bowl out was just how unnecessary it was they could have left it at a tie because india had obviously like gotten a tie so they would not it no result depended on depended on this if they just split the points pakistan would be number 1 india would be number 2 in the group and that that would that would be that right like so the the fact that this bowl out was completely unnecessary i think makes it even more farcical uh, than 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 the actual events of uh, uh, that that transpired so just a quick recap i guess uh, pakistan chose yasir arafat these the you know the weak link then umar gul and then shahid afridi they all proceed to miss the wickets uh, by quite a distance actually and ms dhoni the 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 genius the big brain ms dhoni he starts with virender sehwag who was a decent part time bowler at the time harbhajan singh and then robin utappa and that produced the iconic image of uh, utappa you know bowing down with his with his cap and and all that so yeah it was it was pretty awesome you know yeah. uh, so what do you guys so, think of the bowler i think the bowl out was uh, mainly hosted because the t20 world cup or even the concept of a t20 back then it was introduced as the the outlier the the outlier to the actual purest version of the game whereas when you see test cricket in one day it was not seen as a, the party version of the game t20 was introduced as the game that would that that could uh, be used as a tool to market it to other global audiences and i think that's why there were a lot of gimmicks like if you remember even in australia uh, the players would actually wear their uh, nicknames on their their shirts never have you ever seen that happen in cricket even in odis till now but in t20s you would see pup punter binga and all those names being on their on their kits and uh, i think the bowl out was one more such uh, initiative by the icc to sort of market the game to a global audience cuz it's it's pretty fair, straightforward for us to realize what's happening right all you have to do is as the like if you want to compare it to a a baseball sort of scenario all you have to do is try and pitch the ball onto the wickets so it's a very straightforward scenario and it it brings in that suspense as to who gets to be more accurate or not so that was the only reason why i think the bowlout was introduced as a concept to decide a tied match and of course through the years we've built on to super overs and what nots and how uh, interesting and also how some rules in the super over are very mind numbing but yeah so uh that's the reason why i think the bowl out was taken and also coming to the bowl out itself uh i think you touched upon the fact that uh how we have the iconic image of robin utappa bowing and everything but also now in with hindsight we know that robin utappa is a keeper a part time wicket keeper and he was the one who actually won the bowl out for india so uh just realizing the magnitude of that bowling performance in the bowl out of india is actually blowing my mind <laughs> yeah you know actually speaking i think there was a recent uh, article on crickinfo where dhoni said that he was he trained the players for the bowl out and again in hindsight it makes a lot more sense to go for a part timer rather than a, a a proper 
swing ball because in this case you can see that there's a lot of movement up in the air and going for a leg spin is obviously the worst choice possible because they're going to get the most turn so doni went for part timers who could just hit the stumps and no turn is going to take the ball away from them i mean sevag is not a big turner of the ball and robin uttappa is not in a bowler so technically speaking so what doni just wanted was to just bowl someone who can bowl straight no complications nothing and that just led to all the stumps being broken i mean and that's what made doni's foresight remarkable but Seriously, I mean, this bowl out was like an uncle trying to act cool by saying that they understand new age <laughs> trends. I mean, uh, you had uh, Ravi Shastri literally say that this is not a penalty shootout to draw the reference to football, and and it was just an entirely farcical mark, marketing gimmick. I mean, I understand that cricket had terrible ways to resolve ties. I mean, um, the 1999 World Cup final is infamous or famous for that. uh decision to eliminate south africa based on group points but this i don't know what this was about i mean this was just absolutely ludicrous but it was seriously even here in this ludicrous is i think dhoni's choice of bowlers and his foresight has to be commended i mean no one would have predicted this and no one would have thought this was such a good decision but you know coming to the three bowlers that uh, pakistan used arafat uh gul and uh, afridi let's say afridi is a leg spinner so okay we can say that that was a bad choice but both arafat and gul they're known for the yorkers and what did the both of them bowl they didn't bowl anywhere i think nowhere near the stumps so yeah. like what they both bowl outswingers that was the worst no. part No, they didn't even bowl with their normal action because they they took a short run up. They bowled slow yeah. and they bowled like a floater almost, right? Like, and it just like one of them was like basically a full toss, and like it was it was really weird to see what they did because in my image, this was this might be some Mandela Ma- Mandela effect thing because in my head it was like okay, I thought Pakistan chose their three main fast bowlers and they kind of didn't bowl the right length and it sort of bounced above the wickets. But seeing Yasser Arafat and and Umar Gul bowl these like. basically like these rajat bhatia balls where it's like just floating above the stumps it was like surreal almost exactly so it just felt like they didn't take it seriously they i think pakistan didn't want to win that game because that's how it keeps the vibe at the end because i mean you could say that for many pakistan games oh yeah that's it's it's quintessentially pakistan i guess all of this they choke in the funniest way as possible i mean it's not even heartbreaking when you see that it's just really like fun yeah. but uh no like the robin with the path, like it's interesting you mentioned dhoni dhoni said that they practiced for the bowler because that explains a lot because like how would you even think of the idea of putting robin with the path there like when have you ever seen this guy in the nets right like Sehwag, I can understand you might have bowled him part time in the nets. You see, he bowls stump to stump. I, I, that makes sense, right? And Harbhajan is obviously a mainline bowler, but like Robin Uttappa, like when has this guy touched a cricket ball, <laughs> like and and taken a run up? Like I didn't even know he had a bowling action, and the the idea to uh, put him there and then he just hits the stump straight on. It's it's just so amazing. Uh, I feel like if Suresh Raina was in this, he would have he would have probably gotten one of these uh, bowl out bowl out deliveries. Uh, I have a hypothetical. If one of India's bowlers had actually missed, who do you think Dhoni would have gone with for the last two? Do you think he would have gone with himself? Because you know he's he's done that. Actually, it does seem like a very plausible choice. 
I don't think he'd have gone with Yuvraj because uh, that would have uh, that'd be the ball turning away from the stumps, and I think that's a pretty big risk. So I think he would have either gone with himself or maybe Agarkar to give a very decent option, or he would have gone completely left field and gone for Dinesh Karthik. Yeah, I was going to say Dinesh Karthik too. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, uh, if if you were going to look at more serious suggestions than Dinesh Karthik, I think yeah, it would have been Irfan Pathan given the impact he was having with the ball that day. So I think even he might have been a very uh, plausible choice that Dhoni might have gone to. Yeah, I would I would have actually liked to see Dhoni gone gone with one of our fast bowlers because I I, I would I would wonder if they would do the same thing that Pakistan tried where they just try to bowl a slow straight ball or if they had gone with their normal action. It would be interesting because I don't has there been any other instance of a bowl out ever in in cricket, uh, or was this like the only one? And we got to the super over pretty pretty shortly after that, right? Yeah, I remember a super over happening between New Zealand and Australia. I think. Uh, a short while after the World Cup, or maybe it was just before the World Cup. But yeah, it wasn't a bowl out. I think the bowl out was uh, this was the only bowl out I remember at least. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, to one of Anand's points previously, that cricket has had a horrible way of deciding these ties. I mean, that's still true because of what happened in the most recent finals, where they haven't. They they I guess they never really thought through what would happen if the super over was tied. Um, and that was in a much more consequential game than this. This, like I said, we didn't even need the tiebreaker. Um, so, so yeah. I mean, I guess cricket. You know, ICC get on that shit quickly. You know, we don't we don't want another final or semi-final <laughs> decided in a horrible way like this. Um, do you have any closing thoughts? Because I have like one like weird uh, subplot to end this note on. But do you guys have any closing thoughts on this game or and its impact and and all that? Um, so I think the one pertinent point that we can take off from this is um, how Dhoni's never won another tied 2020 match after this as a captain. I think this was his only T20 win as a captain when the game tied because the other two instances I remember, he was captain for Chennai and uh, they lost to Punjab and then they also lost the other one in the uh, uh, Champions League, where David Hussey hit like 24 runs of uh, Ravi Chandranashin's over. So, I think this is one uh, instance where Dhoni actually got the super or the tight T20 right. Ashwin bowled both of them, right? He bowled the Punjab one as well, right? If I, if no, I remember that correctly. Was, that was Murli Dharan, yeah, but it was still a spinner. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> he bowled a, okay, that, okay. So, so, always left field decisions don't really work out. Uh, but Anand, what about you? Do you have any closing thoughts? I mean, this game was quite interesting because we saw how T20 evolved and now we have the benefit of hindsight to see how good or bad certain decisions were. But the one thing which I really miss, but which was present in this T20 is the amount of movement in the air. I mean, you still had a good deal of swing with the white ball and new ball bowlers could certainly be very effective. Not that they are completely absent now, but if you see wickets like um, Imran Naziz, you cannot play that kind of a shot to moving ball. I mean, but now you can probably get away with those kind of shots because he was just uh, blindly hoiking into the uh, air. So, that's something which cannot be done. You have to play a little more circumspection. So, I think I miss that kind of uh, movement in the air. But, yeah, that's what made this game a lot more exciting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, some of the England 
uh, England, which is still have that with white ball uh, as seen in the last World Cup. But yeah, it's definitely a, a rare sight to see. I've been crying about it for years now that there's no no more movement in the white ball. But the note that I wanted to end on is that uh, after what seems to be an eternity, I finally heard Ravi Shastri again in the commentary box. And for me, it's kind of like a dilemma because I, I don't like Ravi Shastri as a coach. But I also... but you know, if he, if he ever stopped being coach of India, he'd go back to the comm box. <laughs> and so seeing Ravi Shastri and Ramiz Raja being a, a commentary duo was like, oh my God, like that was that was like a blast from the past that <laughs> that was kind of funny. And like, yeah, yeah think, I, I don't even know what to describe it actually. I'm at a, I'm at a loss for words. <laughs> you think Ramiz Raja is a better commentator with Ravi Shastri alongside him because he's been so bad after Ravi Shastri has not been a commentator. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean uh, Ramiz Raja, I mean, it was a, kind of a good counterpoint to Ravi Shastri because Ravi Shastri was very flamboyant and Ravi Raja was very measured. But now you see Ravi Raja trying to be edgy and cool and that, sorry, doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I, I heard the typical Ravi Shastri's, uh, you know, that's a, that's a tracer bullet type, uh, type stuff. I didn't hear his cliches so much in this game, but uh, that's what kind of, really got to me about his commentary over the years. But yeah, like Ramiz Raja as a counterpoint to someone else is probably more tolerable. I'm I'm thinking of the nightmare scenario of Ramiz Raja and Sanjay Mantrekar being the this commentary. Was actually, this is actually one of the points I really felt recently because um, after five months of hearing Deep Das Gupta, Murli Karthik and Sanjay Manjrekar in the commentary panel after the IPL 2020 had ended through the Australian tour and the England home series, Hearing Ramiz Raja commentate on the South Africa-Pakistan series was like music to my ears. Like I've been so anti-Ramiz Raja since he's he's been like commentating in 2015 types, like from 2015. But uh, in this last two months, Ramiz Raja was like the like it's come to that point where Ramiz Raja is actually the best commentator you could have had. I mean, I can't exactly disagree. I mean, even the South African-Pakistan series, I mean, it was very terrible because, I mean, they were all bludgeoning us with a tapal Janeda tea ads. But, and and uh, Ravi Swada tried to be the most effervescent of them whenever he spoke about the tea brand. But yeah, I mean, it's better than the crap we listened to in the India-England series. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's so weird. Like, you know, if you're hearing like a younger Harsha Bhogle and like just how you know, he was still so charismatic back then that like India actually haven't taken that hint and gotten this real like sports presenters, you know, like I, I like certain former players that are really good at commentary as well. But like we, we really need more of these like cricket personalities and, and presenters like sports broadcasters doing these live commentaries because it's, it's, it's legitimately an art form, you know, like whether or not you're that knowledgeable about the sport or if you've been there, I think uh, that's, that's a problem that it's not it's it's definitely a problem in india games cuz oh, oh my god it's it's so bad nowadays but uh you know i i it's it's a problem like with the commentary like throughout you know we don't have guys like i mean i know jeffrey boycott and tony Craig played but like we don't have those types of guys anymore really i think uh, ian Sometimes bishop is pretty close oh yeah good yeah ian bishop is close and the new zealand guy i just forgot his name sir uh, Ian Smith, yes, Ian Smith. Yeah, Ian, he is quite in flamboyant. 
but uh, sometimes i even doubt whether sanjay manjrekar knows his shit and if he was a actual cricketer because and um, so not just sanjay manjrekar i even doubt if shane wan ever played test cricket sometimes oh my that is the most heartbreaking thing oh, oh my he was like a hero to me man like seeing him like and no, i don't deny he is probably the best bowler ever but come on dude his test yeah. commentary is it's it's awful it's so bad <laughs> I mean, he, the only time he's good is when he goes to Sky because Sky, I think, does something to make sure he's more measured. Yeah, I mean, I usually look forward to any England tour. Like England and West Indies is like some of my favorite because it's like you got Michael Holding, Ian Bishop, Nasser Hussain, Atherton. Like that's like the best uh, that we we can we can really get. Mark Nicholas as well. So yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, the I, I and and also I hated that ICC. so somehow they always did this like they if india and pakistan played it would mostly just be indian and pakistani commentators even though it's an international tournament so like i, I don't know why they do that uh, exactly they could have like mixed it up and and done it your vibes if <laughs> your vibes i mean ravi shastri was a vibe for sure it was a unique vibe and i guess i guess i kind of appreciate that you know what i i would appreciate him more in the com box than in the in the indian dugout actually i think that's the biggest takeaway for me <laughs> in this in this game yeah i think we're all yeah, looking I mean, for having more ravi shastri back in the com box yeah <laughs> never thought of this yeah much. but i think kohli loves him so much he also won that australian series and ashwin made his coaching exploits so famous so i don't think that's Yeah, it's not it's not it's not happening anytime soon. But you know, one can only hope. And uh, I guess on on that note, on that uh, somewhat weird, funny, uplifting maybe note, uh, we end this episode of uh, direct hits. Um, if any of you want to give suggestions of what we could do next, um, uh, Alan, Anam, you know, you you guys probably have a reservoir of uh, test match and ODI memories from before I started watching. So. uh hopefully we can we can get some other underrated hidden gems of uh, of cricket you know in, on this on this mini series uh this was this was a lot of fun um signing off uh, this is ani uh alan and anand uh thank you for listening we'll see you next time yeah see you guys you can always leave comments and let us know what you want to hear more so yeah uh, see you guys in the next episode I have enough cash to get in but i'll try <laughs> <laughs>